Hello, I'm your host, Anna Danino, and welcome to episode 16 of the Crime Bistro podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I'm enjoying an almond milk cappuccino, so grab yourself a fresh brew and let's get into the tragic murder of Sherry Rasmussen. The case of Sherry Rasmussen is a tragic example of a cold case that went so long overlooked by law enforcement that it wasn't solved for decades. Sherry Rasmussen was found dead in her living room on February 24th of 1986 by her new husband John, and her murder was written off by detectives as a burglary gone wrong. But her parents had their suspicions, and it took over 20 years and a completely new set of detectives to finally uncover the truth about who was responsible. And for investigators, this ended up being really close to home. Sherry Rasmussen was 29 at the time that she was murdered. She was tall and athletic, with high cheekbones and beautiful eyes. She had been described as smart and savvy and extremely driven. She skipped many grades in school and graduated college at the young age of 16 to become a nurse. She was highly successful in this profession, and she had become a director of nursing at the Glendale Adventist Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. And while she was doing really well, she was constantly trying to better herself, and she really wanted to revolutionize nursing, so she enjoyed taking new classes. She married her husband, John Rutten, in November of 1985, and the two lived in a condominium in the Van News neighborhood in Los Angeles. When Sherry was killed, the two had only been married for three months. They had met two years earlier, and John was instantly drawn in by Sherry's beauty and her drive. Sherry was two years older than her husband, however, she was very confident in herself, and she knew exactly what she wanted in life. Sherry's parents, Nels and Loretta, were not very happy with the relationship. They did think that John was pleasant, but just not a good match for their daughter. However, despite this dislike, they still remained very close with Sherry, and she considered them some of her closest confidants. Sherry thought that John was perfect for her. He was handsome, smart, and had just started a new position at an engineering company. It was also clear that John had some other admirers, which might have made Sherry's desire towards her husband even stronger. February 24th of 1986 was a Monday, and that Monday had started off as a fairly normal day. Sherry had thought about calling in sick to work that day. She was scheduled to go to class that morning. However, this class in particular didn't really appeal to her, and she felt that it was just a waste of time. So, unsure what to do, she stayed in bed while her husband, John Rutten, went to work. The two had woken up early. However, they had also been out the night before and had gone to see a movie together. John told investigators that Sherry wasn't sure if she was going to work, but that he had to go since he had just started a new position and he left the house at about 7.20 a.m. On his way to work, John stopped to drop off some laundry, and he arrived at his building slightly before 8 o'clock a.m. He called Sherry at home a little while later to check on her. However, when she didn't answer, he assumed that she had gone to work and called her office instead. Oddly, her secretary hadn't seen her either, so he tried calling another three to four times. John also mentioned that this wasn't too concerning up front, since the secretary didn't always see Sherry in the mornings, and if she was taking a class, she didn't always call into the office first. John finished work, collected his laundry, and headed home. Immediately, he noticed that the garage door was up, which was unusual, and Sherry's car wasn't there, so he figured that she must have gone out after all. However, he also noticed that there was some glass on the ground, 
so he continued upstairs into the condo. The living room door was open, and then he happened upon a horrifying scene there. In the living room, he found his wife, Sherry, lying on the floor, dead. She was on her back on the brown living room rug, wearing pajamas and a bathrobe, with her arms in the air and bent, and one leg bent at the knee. Her face had been badly beaten and was bloodied and swollen. One of the speakers in the living room was on the floor beside her. A gray ceramic vase was smashed on the floor. A VCR and CD player were stacked and left on the stairs, and there was a smear of blood on the CD player. There was also blood smeared on the walls and on the front door. Upstairs, there was a sliding glass door that led to the balcony that was shattered, so John, seeing this, immediately called 911. An examination of Sherry's body revealed that she had died from three gunshot wounds to the chest, which were inflicted by a thirty-eight caliber handgun. There was also a blanket found in the living room with a bullet hole in it, which was probably used to cover the sound of the shots. She also had significant damage to her right eye, which detectives believe had been caused by her being hit with the vase, and she had a bite mark to her left inner forearm. Her BMW was found a week afterwards, parked on a nearby street with the keys still in the ignition. Her purse was also missing from the scene, but this was also found later in a garden in the condo complex. The crime scene suggested that Sherry's death was the result of a tragic burglary gone wrong. Whoever broke in was trying to rob the home and was surprised to find Sherry home, killing her when she happened upon them. This was in line with some other burglaries nearby, and two days after Sherry's death, a woman nearby was robbed at gunpoint. There were two Latin men who were thought to be the perpetrators, and the detectives believed that this was what happened to Sherry. However, there were never any arrests made in connection with these suspects. The only immediate evidence, though, that the house had been robbed was Sherry's missing car, some misplaced electronics, and the ransacked living room. As it turned out, the only things that were actually missing were the car, which was recovered, their marriage license, and a gift that John had given Sherry. The jewelry box was in plain sight, and it wasn't even touched. Despite the horrific nature of the crime scene, the only witness that I could find who heard anything was a maid who was working nearby the condo on that day who heard a dispute. John was questioned, but not at length, and it seemed obvious that detectives had settled in on the burglary theory very quickly, especially the lead detective, Lyle Mayer, who made the final conclusion. It did seem, though, that John had no involvement, and during the later trial concerning Sherry's murder, Sherry's sister testified that the couple had visited her the day before, saying, quote, they were walking, holding hands like a happy couple, end quote. Nels and Loretta, Sherry's parents, received a call on February 25th of 1986 from John's father telling them that their daughter had died, and this was the day after that had happened. Immediately, they started to wonder why John himself hadn't called them, especially considering the circumstances of her death. While it was mainly Sherry's parents who had doubts about the burglary theory, they did have some completely valid concerns. Firstly, the detectives believed that the altercation between Sherry and the two Latin men had taken over an hour and a half, and Nels didn't understand how his daughter would have managed in a fight against two men for so long. Nels also knew that there was friction in Sherry's marriage to John, and he told detectives to look into the, quote, lady cop, end quote. Sherry had told her father just days before her murder that she thought a lady cop was stalking her on the street. Sherry had also told her father that weeks before their wedding, a woman had shown up at their home asking John to wax her water skis, 
saying that she was an old friend of his, which Sherry believed was just an excuse for her to come to the house and see John. She asked John not to wax the skis for this woman, but he did anyways, and when she came back to collect them, she showed up in a police uniform, telling Sherry that she was on a break. This was told to the investigators when Sherry's parents met with Detective Lyle Mayer during an interview, where they also mentioned that John had dated an LAPD officer, but this was not followed up on. The Rasmussen family had further conversations with detectives, but they were cast aside, being told, quote, you've been watching too much TV, end quote. Two years after her death, they wrote a letter to then-chief Daryl F. Gates asking him to intervene in the investigation, but nothing was done. When they called, they were either placed on hold or hung up on, and were even told at one point, quote, you should do yourselves a favor and move on with your lives, end quote. About five years after Sherry's death, her parents finally gave up on trying to reach out to the police. No one was charged in relation to Sherry's death, and it quickly became a cold case. The case was neglected by LAPD even when Sherry's father offered to front the cost of DNA testing on evidence from the murder himself, but this was refused. Until 2005, the case was sporadically opened and looked at, but mostly just put away again. In 2005, however, it was finally noticed that a swab had been taken from the bite on Sherry's forearm, but that it wasn't in the evidence file. A search revealed that the bite mark was made by a woman, which discounted the theory that the two Latin men were responsible. Interestingly, the partner of the original lead detective, Lyle Mayer, found the bite mark to be strange from the start, since bite marks are most commonly inflicted by women, and the burglars were thought to be men. Frustratingly, however, the file just went back into storage as there wasn't anything about a woman in Sherry's file, because the original detective that Nels contacted with the water ski story had never reported it. A few years passed, and a new set of detectives began to look at the case again with a new approach, disagreeing with the original conclusion. These new detectives believed that someone had entered through the front door, since it was open and the alarm was off, so this wouldn't have caused any noise disturbance. This person then went upstairs, firing two shots and missing both times, which is what caused the glass on the balcony door to shatter. They believed that Sherry then ran upstairs trying to reach the panic button, but the intruder caught up to her, which is when they began to fight. Sherry then got this person into a headlock, and the intruder bit her on the arm, which caused her to let go. The intruder then smashed the vase over Sherry's head, and she was shot in the chest once. The final two shots to Sherry's chest were fired, with the blanket being used as a makeshift silencer. Further, the blood on the CD player was Sherry's, and it was believed to have gotten there after the murder occurred, which would indicate that the scene was staged to look like a robbery, but then who would have wanted Sherry dead? One thing that was overlooked in the initial investigation was the nature of the gunshot wounds that Sherry had sustained. The final two were contact wounds, which means the gun was directly up against her chest and they were fired point blank. This would suggest that the crime was of a personal nature and that the perpetrator used excessive force because of some sort of negative emotion towards Sherry. There was a major break in the case when detectives came across a small note in the original file reading, quote, John Rutten called, verified Stephanie Lazarus P.O. was former girlfriend, end quote. Obviously, they needed to know who Stephanie Lazarus was, 
and since PO stood for police officer, they were able to find her details in their database. She was a detective with the Los Angeles Police Department. Stephanie was a decorated officer. She was an art theft detective and a high-profile media rep for the LAPD. Her background was essentially the perfect cover-up. She majored in political science at the University of California at Los Angeles and applied to the police academy directly after graduating, becoming an officer in 1983. Armed with now knowing Nell's suspicions from all of those years ago about the lady cop, and knowing based on the bite mark that they were looking for a woman, they had to look into it, even though Stephanie was a detective. On the day Sherry was murdered, it was found that Stephanie had had the day off. A thirty-eight caliber gun was the one used in the murder, and they looked into whether Stephanie had one, which she did, and she did report it stolen just weeks after the murder. Thirty-eight caliber revolvers were used by LAPD officers in the 80s as their backup guns, However, all of this was still circumstantial, considering that the gun itself was never found. The officers knew that they still needed physical evidence, so Stephanie was followed in May of 2009, and outside of a Costco, they received a straw that she had used. A lab was then able to confirm that the DNA from the straw was a match to the swab taken on the bite mark from Sherry's arm. Matthew McGough, who authored a book about this case, mentioned a disturbing detail later on, saying, quote, She worked at Van News Division, which is where the murder occurred, two separate times in the 1990s, and without question during those time periods, she had unfettered access to all of the case files involving the unsolved murder of Sherry Rasmussen, end quote. He also said, quote, Stephanie has never spoken publicly about what influence she may have exerted over the case, what she may have done, but without question she had the opportunity to remove materials, documents from the casebook that may have implicated her, end quote. She was taken in for questioning to Parker Center, which was an administrative building, under the guise of needing her help with a different case. However, the investigators almost immediately started to ask questions about Sherry. Stephanie claimed not to remember how many times or the circumstances under which they had met but she did say that they may have spoken about John. What she didn't know was that officials had already planned to arrest her the moment she ended the interview, so as soon as she walked out of the room, she was placed in handcuffs, and Stephanie was arrested on June 5th of 2009, a full 23 years after the crime occurred. The bail hearing set her bail amount at $10 million to prevent her from fleeing or from obtaining weapons through her husband, who was also a detective, she was also allowed to retire from the LAPD, which seems like an underreaction to one of your employees being arrested for murder. Stephanie finally stood trial for Sherry's murder in 2010, pleading not guilty to her charges. Her husband, along with some other family members, were in attendance the whole time. Prosecutors argued that Stephanie knew how to avoid leaving evidence such as fingerprints at a crime scene, However, the idea that saliva from a bite mark could implicate her wasn't a concern in 1986 as DNA testing was not advanced enough. The prosecution also had a very easy time coming up with a motive. Stephanie was so in love with John that she decided that if she couldn't have him, neither could Sherry. When Stephanie first discovered that John was engaged to Sherry, she had written a letter to John's mother reading, quote, I'm truly in love with John and the past year has really torn me up. 
I wish it didn't end the way it did, and I don't think I'll ever understand his decision, end quote. In his opening statement, Deputy District Attorney Shannon Presby said, quote, Sherry Rasmussen was wearing the gown that Stephanie Lazarus believed was hers, end quote. He also declared, quote, a bite, a bullet, a gun barrel, and a broken heart. That's the evidence that will prove the defendant, Stephanie Lazarus, murdered Sherry Rasmussen, end quote. In court, John revealed that when Stephanie found out about the engagement, she invited him over to her house and confessed that she still loved him. The two did sleep together that night, but John admitted it was a mistake and that he still wanted to marry Sherry. Their relationship wasn't completely one-sided, either. Stephanie and John had known each other since attending UCLA together. They shared the same dorm floor, and Stephanie had become somewhat close to certain members of his family. A colleague of Sherry's during the trial also confirmed that Stephanie had called into her office and argued with her about John. Stephanie tried to make John leave Sherry, but when it didn't work, she decided she had no other choice. And disturbingly, for a while, this did actually work for Stephanie, and she and John met up on a holiday afterwards. However, they both went on to marry different people. Stephanie's defense attorney, Mark Overland, wrote in court documents that Stephanie had not been the one to initiate contact between her and John after the murder, and there was no evidence presented that Stephanie knew where they lived or even knew their home phone number. They also argued that the DNA evidence was corrupted over the years and could not be considered reliable evidence. It is also important to mention that author Matthew McGough has said, quote, there's a lot of evidence in the case that went missing over the years, including trace evidence collected from Sherry's body that was inexplicably checked out from the coroner's office by an LAPD detective in the early 90s and was never seen again, end quote. It was considered that John was involved, however detectives found no evidence that he had any idea what Stephanie was planning. In March of 2012, Superior Court Judge Robert Perry found Stephanie Lazarus guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced her to 25 years to life in prison, with an additional two years for personal use of a firearm. She was 52 at the time, and her conviction came 26 years after Sherry was murdered. She will be eligible for parole in 2039 and continues to insist on her innocence to this day. Stephanie did appeal, saying that the search warrant where her personal journal was discovered was improperly granted and that the original burglar theory wasn't presented during trial, but this appeal was denied in 2015 and her conviction was upheld. In the years that passed between Sherry's death and the trial, Stephanie was free to marry, adopt a daughter, and receive a promotion to detective. However, Sherry was finally able to receive justice with this conviction. The oversights in this case were vast and heartbreaking for Sherry's family. She should have received justice, and they should have received the closure of knowing what happened to her much sooner. Jennifer Francis, a criminalist who helped find important evidence in Sherry's case, claimed that the LAPD ignored evidence that linked Stephanie to the crime. She actually sued Detective Cliff Shepard of the Robbery Homicide Division's cold case for ignoring the results of DNA tests that she performed, and this was actually the testing that confirmed it was female DNA on Sherry's body. She alleged that Shepard knew Stephanie was involved with Sherry but did not want to consider her, 
and also claimed that she was told by supervisors to ignore possible evidence connecting Stephanie to Sherry, and she wasn't the only one. According to the case record, people came out to speak against Stephanie during the initial investigation and in the subsequent 10 years, but those statements were dismissed and all of the recordings of those statements are missing. The Rasmussen family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the LAPD and the City of Los Angeles in 2010, but it was dismissed because of the expired statute of limitations. A man named Matthew McGough authored a book about the case, which was published in April of 2019 and called The Lazarus Files, A Cold Case Investigation. And in speaking about the ordeal with Inside Edition, he said, quote, We know who killed Sherry, but we don't know a lot about how Stephanie got away with it. And most importantly, no one has been held accountable for any of the mistakes that allowed a police detective to get away with a cold-blooded murder for more than 20 years, end quote. Personally, I think it's hard to say whether or not I think there was a cover-up involved here. However, it's not at all disputable that the evidence and investigation were grossly mishandled. The family's attempts to find justice for their daughter were overlooked for years, and there really is no excuse for the prolonging of their suffering without closure. Though Stephanie Lazarus will be in prison for a long time, she still got away with murder for over two decades, and she was able to live the life that she so cruelly took away from Sherry in 1986. I am glad that there has been a conclusion, however, the handling of this case is tragic in its own right, and I hope that future families don't have to go through this long and awful ordeal. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Crime Bistro Podcast, and if you're interested in learning more about the case of Sherry Rasmussen, all of the sources are listed in the show notes at crimebistro.com. If you have a theory of your own to share, feel free to head over and visit the podcast on YouTube or on Instagram at Crime Bistro Podcast to leave a comment and see some behind-the-scenes updates on the episodes to come. With that, this story is coming to a close, so thanks again, and as always, until next time.